everyone, and welcome to the Rare Birds Podcast. I am your host, Joanne Hamilton, and welcome back to the final episode in our series, New Frontiers of African Tech. So today we have a lovely panel that we've brought together to wrap up the conversation that we've been having for the past few weeks. So yeah, today we thought we would bring in like our, some of our friends who are also in China uh, to join our conversations and just to see, uh, yeah, what more we can explore. Um, so we have um, Charles Zero from Ghana, who has, uh, who's currently a CTO of a tech startup in Shanghai. And he's also, he's quite inspiring. He's also running a few of his own ventures, all related to tech. Um, so yeah, so very excited to have him. And then second, we have Noah, who is uh, from Kenya, which is a country that I feel really close to. And Noah is doing his PhD in Shanghai and has been living here in the last uh, four years. And Noah also runs his own company and he's a um, communication specialist and um, he does a lot with languages. Um, so he has an interesting perspective as well. Okay, so now I will have them. Um, okay, so Noah and Cyril, you can say hi to the audience. <laughs> hi everyone, uh, Charles Cyril here. Thanks Heather for the introduction and uh, Joanne for having us on. It's, it's really quite interesting what you guys are doing with uh, Redbeds um, yeah. in the podcast. Um, looking at the the, the people that you've spoken to over the past few weeks, um, they're definitely an interesting uh, uh, group of people, all kind of targeting e-commerce, but a different perspective of e-commerce. Um, so it's really quite interesting. I'm really excited to, to join today's episode to share a few thoughts and um, see how we could you know, push the conversation further. <clears throat> so um, a bit more about myself. Um, my name is Charles Soronetti. I'm originally from Ghana. I currently um, work with a startup called Yumi. I am the CTO and co-founder of, of this startup. And it's also in the e-commerce space, but we deal specifically with marketplace and uh, social commerce. That's our sort of niche area. And we kind of help international brands set up shop in China um, and sell on WeChat. That is our, our current uh, value proposition. Um, Heather did mention that I have a few other um, interests, uh, specifically in tech and in the African communities. So I, together with a good friend of mine, Peggy, uh, are putting together uh, a group called the African Diaspora Innovation Group, which is focused on closing the circle of African students, African entrepreneurs that move to the Asian diaspora to pursue uh, different goals and we and we want to kind of close that circle that that uh, transactional circle and provide them with a little bit more information um, and uh, support that they may need to return back home so that's a little bit about myself um, again thank you for having me Heather and Joe thank you for the um, more details to your introduction and Noah do you have anything else that you would like to tell us before we start our discussion Thank you very much, Heather Lee, for the introduction and also Joanne for uh, 
setting the, the floor. So my name is Noah Namwamba. I'm from Kenya in East Africa. And uh, I'm the current CEO and founder of COMC. So it's C-O-M-M-S-E-A, which stands for Communication Students and Entrepreneurs Association, which is a platform that I found in 2014. And it currently has uh, members from five different countries um, with the highest number coming from Kenya. Uh, so what we focus on is mentorship, basically developing personal and professional skills uh, or personal and professional development. And uh, we basically help uh, mentees to get mentors. And we also try to help students who are graduating from universities to develop their personal skills for them to get a good uh, an understanding of how they could penetrate into the uh, career career their different careers or the job market so i also currently study in china i am uh, majoring in new media i have always loved uh, you know china because of how it develops that and also a good uh, a good understanding of tech and uh, say you know there's a very a very huge market for different products especially in e-commerce you know, Kenya is uh, my home country, and we are the first country to uh, to start mobile payments back in 2007, which was started by a very young student in high school. And uh, that made a lot of young Kenyans uh, be very passionate in, in, in entrepreneurship. So... It, it, it was sort of my call back in the days in 2007, 2008 to start my own company and see how I could, uh, I, I could you know, bring in some change or add some value to my community by making good use of uh, the resources available. So with, without much ado, I will also say, mention that my my key interests, especially in in China at the moment, are yeah, you know, uh, tapping into the large uh, technologically enabled market, and uh, being able also to understand the Chinese tech market, because I think there are a lot of things that we can learn from uh, from China than from Europe and and from uh, from US, because we have a lot of things. In common in terms of culture, business culture, entrepreneurial culture uh, in, in Africa. So uh, I'll pass pass to the hosts, uh, Heather and Joanne. Yes. So Heather, do you want to um, start by maybe giving us what were some of your impressions of, of the conversations that we've been having these past several weeks? um yeah sure um so like the few conversations that we've had so far um quite interesting that all of them have some elements with e-commerce so e-commerce is definitely like a dynamic space to explore for entrepreneurs in different countries in africa and i know both noah and zero mentioned that they are having interest or they're currently working for an e-commerce startup 
So I guess I wanted to like to start with some general observations of like the e-commerce um, uh, industry in China and how you see similar models work back home, uh, or if you have the opportunity to review like their startups, um, like what are some of your impressions of um, what they're trying to do and how how do you think it's scalable or um, yeah, or feasible in the context of Africa or your home country? Okay, maybe Noah, you go first, and then I, I add in later. Um, maybe uh, the the first thing that I will start by saying is, uh, you know, we both come from you know a continent which is uh, growing quite fast. Um, in terms of uh, IT, uh, like for example, in Kenya, we have uh, quite a number of, you know, B2C e-commerce uh, platforms. The landscape is quite huge. We have a mobile phone penetration of around 98% with 4G right now being a, a big thing. We have not gotten to the level of 5G. We are, uh, we are we're having a very large size of e-commerce uh, by 2018, 2019, it was around $45 million, which is quite huge for Kenya. And we have almost 10 million active social media users in uh, 2020, by 2020. And currently we have uh, a, a huge number of uh, Kenyans who, uh, transact or use mobile money to make transactions, which has led to a lot of opportunities uh, being uh, uh, being discovered. And I think the the most important thing that probably I can say uh, as a start is some of the things that I've realized are working in China are are uh, as a result of say the ease of product penetration into the market and also the understanding of products by the, the users. Uh, but on the contrary, say in, in my country, you might find that uh, some organizations or companies spend a lot of money and time trying to, to elaborate or to uh, educate the, the, the clients about certain products that they're putting in the market. Uh, but they don't have, say, enough resources to do that, which gives it, uh, uh, you know, a difficult perspective to penetrate as fast, like the way it does in China. And something I would also mention is, you know, like in in Kenya specifically, I'll I'll mostly give the perspective from Kenya because it's my country. I I think we have one. A big opportunity, especially in terms of logistics and supply chain, because the the largest the largest uh, platforms which are uh, really working well mostly go towards finance, insurance, or general retail, or say electronics. Uh, but we do not have enough, say, e-commerce platforms that you know get into logistics and supply chain. We have like four very important and four very important ones, which I can say have not performed quite well because they do not really understand the dynamic uh, or the 
as I said, the dynamism of the Kenyan population or East African population, because how we behave when we are buying uh, products, you know, differs from time to time and also depending on, say, the international markets, uh, advertising, marketing and all that. So I think there are a lot of things that I'm learning from the, the perspective of China, how they, are, how they leverage or how they make good use of, uh, you know, their, their e-commerce uh, platforms to solve some logistical problems. That's, that's definitely an interesting outlook. Um, and I'll just add a little bit to, to what Noah said. Um, most of, if you look at the FMG space um, in Ghana and, and some of the African countries, um, they mostly have the resources to be able to actually understand the behavioral patterns of consumers. Um, they have a better understanding of what the consumers want and you realize that those are the industries that excel the most. Um, but that data is not readily available to every startup. Um, it's not really available to even government sometimes, uh, partially because of the attention that is given to the whole concept of understanding um, consumers or being informed by, by data. And that is sort of a direct translation to um, the, the success of most of these e-commerce companies. Uh, not a lot of focus is, is put on um, the consumers. There, there is the assumption that you know, the same thing that works in country A will work in country B, or because um, I have little resources, I just kind of like take shortcuts and try to get something out there so fast that I don't put enough emphasis on uh, the fact that, you know, the consumer behavior is fundamentally different. And that is a huge limiting factor to the success of most e-commerce platforms. Uh, in China, for example, there is a lot of um, open, readily available data um, from industry players, um, either through you know, little subscription fees or even if it's open, there is that possibility um, for a startup to acquire some information um, to be able to kind of like assess their stand in the e-commerce space and make decisions around that. Even if it's not readily available, um, because of the culture of, the, of Asians and, and Chinese people, um, to the way they react with local products. Um, even if you have a, 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 a new product out there that you want to put out, you could easily gain enough traction to be able to start gaining insights um, from, from that initial data and then you inform uh, your, your later decisions. So that's, that's a few things that I want to add to what Noah said. So uh, to conclude, if, if you sort of want to um, really uh, make the most out of your e-commerce business or e-commerce space, you have to bear in mind that uh, what applies in country A would definitely not apply in country B. And uh, what applies in, um, in Kenya would definitely not apply, apply to Ghana, even if there might be some overlapping um, inferences that you can pull. Yeah, that's actually something that we, when we spoke to, I think it was both Tav and Reginald, Tav spoke a lot about how many countries, Heather, did he say he, he traveled? Was it 12 or 15 countries or something? Before, yeah, I think around that. Before, before he, he settled. Before he settled. Because 
obviously because of like what you said different you know when people speak of africa it's like oh one big continent just like china well we all know that's not the case right so he traveled around to assess the different markets and to research and to see what would actually work and what wouldn't so that was a really um a big part of his strategy in terms of developing sumo tech but also the educated consumer is something that both him and reginald touched on because i think reginald said that he he finds himself having to spend a lot of time trying to educate people on how to actually use ticket miller because his biggest competitor right now is actually paper tickets you know because people are just so used to using paper tickets and i remember tab saying the problem is with the educated consumer but also with employees he just can't he has difficulty finding employees who actually know and understand why these products are necessary and needed so that was definitely those were some themes in our in our conversation as well an educated consumer because you can design these products these platforms but what's the point if no one can use them or knows how to use them or if there's no interest in them you know yeah, Joanne, I agree with you. And I think it's one of the most important things that uh, most of the entrepreneurs today, uh, you know, have to know. It's, it, it's a big mistake because sometimes you find that people don't know really how to sell. They don't know how to, how to find the, the, the gap in the market for them to create a market in the gap. They basically uh, say, um, even come up with some very good products, but maybe they do not understand the consumer culture, you know? Mm. So it, it becomes even difficult for them to, uh, to create the right messages to send out uh, or, or, or even to even say convince the, the consumers to, to buy the ideas. So I, I think the most important thing is they must, or entrepreneurs, uh, or, or business owners have to have some principle of fast knowledge. Mm. For example, mm. you know, like in the 1990s, if you told someone, like, you have to invest in blockchain or, or Bitcoin, mm -hmm. they'll be like, mm. hey, what's that? You know, <laughs> what's Bitcoin? Well, what's, what's blockchain? Or, you know, if, if you'll tell someone about AI or 5G, it, it will sound so, so absurd. You know, but today it's it's something quite practical. So it's important that people or the clients are at least informed. They like there should be that sort of I think quest for um, tech knowledge in the in the society, and that's why even Cyril mentioned that there are some products that can work so well in Ghana because say the the people there really have the knowledge about that specific product or there's that there's that need. But when it comes to Kenya, for the same, for the same, same product, probably it can't work quite well. And maybe that's one of the reasons why, why Nyasha uh, from Zimbabwe probably mm. is doing his, his, his project in, in Tanzania, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I remember Tav specifically saying something around the difference between building app and tech tools in Nigeria versus Kenya. I can't remember exactly what, but I think he said in one country, they build really nice apps, but nobody uses them. <laughs> Whereas in another country, the app or the technology may not be the best, but people know how to use them and interact with them. So I thought that was interesting as well in sort of 
one country versus versus the next. Yeah, I also think that um uh, in general, like the whole um, e-commerce space is is especially challenging um in in africa specifically because of you know we all know the the border situation um and the drastic differences in both culture and and language and currency when you move from one country to another like it can be a neighboring country for example um ghana is an english-speaking country and all its neighboring countries are um francophone speaking countries and that comes with its own difference in in, in culture even though we might have some very similar shared underlying cultures um the language has you know further evolved the people so you find most people doing comparisons or most people doing expansions um from ghana straight to nigeria because that's the closest english-speaking um counterpart and you have more similarities over there so the, the problems that um that are faced with our entrepreneurs that are trying to tackle e-commerce and other uh, digital businesses is a huge one it's, it's something that um they struggle a lot with i, I was speaking to um a friend of mine who also owns a, an e-commerce business in Nigeria um, and you know they have the dreams to be able to scale and to, to bring in enough revenue to be able to like start up in, in different regions across the country but they have the fundamental problem where they are just simply unable to do so because of the the, the profitability margins right we, um, Noah mentioned that um, the mobile phone penetration is about 99 percent um, in, in Kenya and it's, it's definitely going to be around the same in Ghana. But then, um, for most of these internet solutions, the the mobile phone penetration is not enough. You need three uh, G or four G penetration. You need smartphone penetration data. And once you start to like consider all of those, the numbers drastically reduce. And then you factor in the competition that most startup founders will have from international competitors or even local competitors. It even brings the margins down even even smaller. So for a fresh new startup that is trying to, you know, champion a specific niche market, he's already sort of at disadvantage because um, the, uh, the potential market is already small, right? And most of these large e-commerce players um, have the benefit of being cross-border, being having like huge market penetration to be able to actually turn in a profit. So you find most of these e-commerce partners kind of like slowing their innovation or um, reducing the amount of technological influence that goes into the product because they want to maximize their their profits they want to be able to reach as much people as they can um, so they dumb down their tech they tend to like use um, more trusted um, ways of reaching people so ussd which mm. might not necessarily be you know the most cutting edge technology so these are some of the problems that these e-commerce players have like from the get-go and some of these can be solved through like more investments you know where the e-commerce players can have more um capital to be able to like you know do more of these daring pushes and you know, push beyond their boundaries um yeah yeah heather do you want to add um yeah uh definitely uh, well, also there's another thing that like maybe the consumers in Africa uh, or yeah, like in some countries like they would still more used to using uh, Western products. Uh, like for example, like Ticket Miller, like maybe people were more used to use the, um, uh, what are the, like the ones that's, 
Even yeah, Eventbrite or like those needed. products. So, so they have to also fight for the space with some like more mature international companies. Uh, so that's even narrowing down their uh, local market as well. Um, yeah. I also, something that just sprang to my mind is, I think there's a danger of selling technology for technology's sake. I think if you're not solving a problem, then the technology may perhaps be, it, it's just like a, few, a futile effort, you know? I think if you're, if you're actually solving a real problem, and you're selling that this problem is going to be solved, I think irrespective of, the, of how, that is, how that comes forward, say with a very complicated technology, I think as long as people believe that the problem will be solved, then perhaps they will engage with that technology more. And then, the tech, then from there, it's all about you know, educating people then, okay, this is the technology now, and this is, this is what you have to kind of learn and understand. I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Because sometimes I feel like people are just trying to create technologies for technology's sake because it's cool and because it's in. I don't know. <laughs> I might be wrong. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I mean, the core meaning of innovation is, you know, you're solving a problem. Um, so there always has to be a, so, someone's problem that you're solving. Right, and these are some of the few things that you learn when you, you know, read books about entrepreneurship or innovation. Is that you need to find your, your product market fit. You need to make sure that the solution you're building has, you know, someone who has that problem behind it. Mm. Um, and keeping that in mind, um, you kind of also realize that sometimes you we tend to over-engineer um, problems that you know don't need to have all the fancy bells and whistles just as yet. Mm. Um, I saw one of one of the startups. I think it was um, Flexi Africa yeah. or One Kiosk. Mm -hmm. One of them are still yeah. using um, traditional like Google Docs or Google Forms to to solve their solution because that's what they need right now. They they leverage um, they they have the advantage of you know saving a few thousand dollars on salaries where they can you know find solve their problem with some existing technology, and it's all around the same thing. If if you're able to identify the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, you kind of like are more enlightened to the kind of solutions that will fit the problem. I'll give an example. Um, there's a very popular fitness um, app, I, I forgot the name of it, in, in China. And it's just about locating um, workout sessions or locating gyms. Um, and I spoke to this, this founder and he started out just by creating WeChat groups and um, having deals with different gyms and just pasting the the promotions in the group and that's how like he was able to start out fixing this problem so he was able to save so much money um uh, and able to also understand the needs of the, the the people that he was trying to help more by you know using a less sophisticated solution for uh what seems to be a, a complicated problem yeah because then you end up spending a lot of money unnecessarily and not spending a lot of money yes exactly one more thing that I'll add is um, just taking off the tangent that you put forth about, um, you know, just using existing, copying different solutions that are existing in different markets. Um, mm -hmm. I, I will also want to add that there are different approaches to the e-commerce game. There, China, for example, has had a surge in the concept of social commerce, you know, the China first kind of thing, um, using affiliate commissions and KOLs to kind of like, 
mm. um, change the way that we, we we sell online. So then people just have to, you know, like you said, think about the problem they're trying to solve even more and just open themselves up to um, different possibilities. Sometimes when you have uh, too many examples uh, of how to solve a problem, our default is just to use what, like the examples and kind of like limits um, our ability to innovate. And that's another thing that I've realized about a few of these e-commerce platforms um, within across the continent. It's the same um, technologies they're using, the same approaches they're using, the same designs that they're using. And sometimes you just miss the whole point when you have too many examples. Mm, maybe everybody's just trying to copy everybody else instead of actually trying to solve local problems on the ground. Problems. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. yeah. What I wanted to... Um, to jump into next, which is something I know you're both experienced in, is the investment angle. Because across the board, all four of our um, interviewees mentioned that investment is, it's the big elephant in the room. It's the pain point for a variety of reasons. I mean, Tav shared with us his experience. Reginald talked about his experience. Um, uh, Adeshina discussed his experience in Nigeria with a lot of um, angel investors in Nigeria feeling like they've been burned and now they don't want to get back into the game again. It was just consistent, consistent across the board. So, and I know this is a big topic. So to begin with, why I, what I'm curious about is why is it that local, local investors, because I know some countries have angel networks and some don't. So why is it that you have some local investors that would prefer to invest their monies outside of their country, preferably somewhere in the Western world, as opposed to putting their, placing their bets on someone who is solving a problem, you know, someone from their own country, you know, so, someone who can actually have impact and affect change for maybe an, an entire, an entire um, population? Noah, do you want to start with yeah. that one? Maybe I can start with uh, looking at the, <laughs> the mm. moral perspective of it. Yeah. I think one is some of these people, I'm not saying all, because I've not done a good research on the number of people in, in particular, but I can of say course. it's mostly about greed mm. and uh, inadequate patriotism. Because you see or you find like, Chinese mostly who invest in, in, in China end up, you know, creating a lot of opportunities for their people. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the growth from that progress goes back into developing the country's economy. But some of the African entrepreneurs who love or tend to invest outside, they do that because one maybe they feel like the the market or the the people are not quite willing to uh you know support or the market is a bit volatile i mean the financial market or even uh the predictability of the say the product in terms of whether it's going to be successful or fail or whether it's going to uh penetrate the market the way it's been projected or not so even after doing all this situation, uh, situational analysis, maybe they still feel like it's not producing the right results based mm. on history. Mm. But um, mo- most of it has always been because of them feeling like when they invest outside, 
the risk is lower for them to lose or uh, maybe the possibility of them gaining more is is higher compared to doing the same locally maybe the government doesn't really support a lot of uh, local investments in terms of how they gain as individuals and uh, yet maybe they want to build a better investment or i can say a funding portfolio mm-hmm. uh, within the country or within the region which maybe the the politics in the country doesn't allow and maybe what i can say more specifically uh, especially if i'm looking at the specific um uh, I can say examples that we have, for instance, in Kenya, we have, you know, mostly people uh, funding their projects through, say, crowdsourcing. For example, mm-hmm. in Kenya, we have a platform called Zidisha. Mm-hmm. So simply people can post their project proposals and then uh, investors, uh, you know, get the pitches and they select what they feel is feasible and stuff. Or maybe through some microfinances, some microfinance groups, especially Kenya, that actually works quite much because you find like people set themselves in groups of around ten to fifteen, and then they they do something called um, called chama. So mm-hmm. chama stands for maybe a table banking group, mm-hmm. whereby, for instance, if if we are a group of fifteen people and we are doing table banking for um, well, like we're doing it monthly or weekly, depending on, on the policy. So let's say every month someone has to contribute uh, 5,000 RMBs. And then at the end of the month, it's given to member A. So from member one up to 15, and then it goes rotating like that. And people mostly tend to go for such schemes because they're more promising. It's uh, like you can't lose your money and and you you can at least, you know, uh, fund uh, a big project in, in the long term, and uh, maybe also venture capitals. Though mm-hmm. you find that uh, it's it's a bit difficult, especially uh, if you look at uh, say some some uh, some organizations which are trying to get some seed money for startups. So it's it's both high risk, but but promising. Like mm-hmm. in Kenya, we have one called Nairobi Garage. Mm-hmm. which has not done so well. And then for government, if I'm to give my perspective on government, you know, for instance, in Kenya, politics plays a big role. So like uh, the, the current president has what he calls the big four agenda. That is uh, manufacturing, uh, food security, uh, affordable housing, and, uh, and healthcare for all. So if a startup... Uh, or maybe someone who is trying to set up a business is anchoring their business within those four key sectors, mm. they can easily get funding from the government. Mm. And if someone's business idea or startup project is you know, not really anchored within those four, they, th- their posts are really big quagmire because they cannot be able to even, even pitch because it's not within the 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 parameters you know of the of the country's you know agenda and 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 again something else is competition which i feel plays a very big role in terms of local investors not uh finding some of these projects because you find uh for instance you would like to fund uh maybe two or three projects and 
you get a very large number of pitches of highly competitive projects, which makes it a bit difficult for some of the investors even to select. Yeah, and some of them maybe look like they're quite feasible, but the market maybe might not really be uh, receptive. I can give a good example of, uh, but this doesn't really apply in terms of uh, like what I'm talking about, but I'm giving an example of what happened uh, back then in Kenya before Uber uh, like launched the app in my country. So we used to have these traditional taxis who, you know, like did their business as usual. But then when Uber came in and, and it was like you can cab from, from, from an app, they felt like it's going to pose a very uh, big threat to their business. Mm. You know, so there were these people who are uh, mostly taxi drivers who are protesting and they, they never wanted Uber to like, you know, work even with them because they will lose their control according mm -hmm. to how they looked at it. And now if you look at uh, the competition in that area, it's not very stiff. We have almost seven apps. You know, China mostly uses Didi, Dida, but in, in Kenya we have almost five. We have Uber, we have uh, Taxify, we have ShareCab, we have like almost seven of them. So like the moment one platform comes to solve our problem, it's like, it, it, it's fast to action another platform or another startup to come with a, even a similar and uh, maybe do some bit of value addition. Uh, for example, if one, one app is simply offering, uh, say, um, uh, cab sharing, yeah, or, uh, or, or ride hail, uh, another app, say, offers uh, discounts. You know, they feel like that's, that's how they can create a competitive edge against the other, the other platforms. So it more or less calls for other startups to uh, just keep on building and building and building just to make whatever uh, was existing obsolete. That's my take. Mm. You know, you, men you mentioned the, the crowd crowdsourcing. Um, yeah. But the, I'm, I'm assuming these projects that are being sourced by the crowd, they're not high growth startups. These are smaller projects, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly, okay. Do you wanna, thank you for that. That was really, um, that was really informative actually. Do you wanna add to that, Cyril? Yeah, yeah, I do have a few things that um, popped up in my head um, while uh, Noah was, was speaking. So I think that the first thing that kind of like, uh, is ringing in my head is the investment culture. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of investors in on, on the continent, local investors, but they tend to go for more traditional markets like real estate, <clears throat> agriculture, or mm -hmm. some other, um, or or mining or something, something that has more more security, pretty much. Um, and I think one of the main reasons for that is because of the way that people invest. Um, in Ghana, for example, um, speaking to a few angel investors here, one of the key things they'll tell you when you want to get started with investing is that you're not supposed to invest, you know, some, you're supposed to be able to live without the money invested, right? Um, it's supposed to, you know, be something that you can forget about and, you know, you're aware of the risks that it comes with. Mm -hmm. But you find um, in most cases for young people that want to start going to investing, they are looking to investment as a way out, as a way that they could 
um, you know, grow wealth and, you know, make something of themselves. So when you look at the young people that are looking to invest, these are the things that they're looking out for. They're looking for security. So they would not invest in a market that is not tested. They will not invest in a market that they're not confident about. They're not looking to, let's say, add to the long-term growth of the field. They're looking at something that can give them some return in the next few years. And they can also, you know, like uh, make something of themselves. Um, and that also translates to the people that are more matured and richer in the space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the same. Th th there's always that uh, yearn to make more money and to, to you know, get more. So like uh, Noah mentioned, a bit of greed. Mm -hmm. um, plays, plays Just a, a bit of greed. Just a snippet. <laughs> Just a little bit of greed um, in there. Um, and that, that's a huge part. So when I speak to some of some investors here, um, they, they start up the company or like they make some money, they sell their company and then, you know, they're okay with what they have to, you know, um, live by and then they reinvest the rest or they join an angel networks and they try to like, you know, bring up other startups. So the culture is a very important part of um, why most African startups have um, problems raising funds. Right? Yeah, culture is big. Um, Culture is yeah, culture is, culture is definitely very big. Um, but then again, if you look at the investment profile of um, VCs and, and investors that are on the continent, um, we are lucky enough to not just have local investment opportunities. We have a lot of international presence, um, not just um, European, Asian, or American, but we also have like cross-continental investment funds. So you have a fund in Nigeria that is opening a branch in South Africa, you know, to go into tech investment. So they are there, they're available. Um, they might not be in the abundance, so they might not have as much capital as um, medium level startups may require, but they're enough for early stage startups. Then a second problem starts to grow up. The quality of um, pitches and the quality of um, work that most of these early stage startups put forward. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes it's just not impressive. Mm. Um, looking through some of the profiles um, of some African startups, some of them are the ones that you mentioned today. Um, they don't put their best foot forward, right? Mm. Um, at, at every single stage of your early stage startups life, you always want to have your best foot forward. That if a potential investor stumbles upon your website, stumbles upon your LinkedIn, they want to have, you want to give them as much confidence as you can give at that stage, right? So little things like buttons on your website not working or um, boilerplate text on your website, uh, still on your website after you've like launched are turnoffs for, for angel investors, especially or, or younger investors. Mm. It just reduces your credibility um, in their eyes. And these are little things that you can change um, and it will have like a somewhat of a direct impact on your, your ability to attract investors. And these things seem trivial um, for most people that are not in the startup system, but you'd be surprised um, as to how many other like international startups, even here in China, um, in China Accelerator, for example, these are things that they reiterate over and over again, always put your best foot forward. And um, if you still happen to have an investor stumbling on your website, or going to your LinkedIn profile, they should be able to find um, their way to your startup so that you can you know, at least increase your ability to attract other investors. Um, and then also 
uh, if you look at the government, so Noah spoke a little bit about the, the government's role. I think our governments have a huge role to play in these industries that are still, you know, budding. So technology, AI, um, I think we have to like really invest, our governments have to like really invest in these um, uh, areas. Because right now, our markets are not as, um, as um, bright as they could be. So mm -hmm. you take technology, for example, if you compare it to agriculture, uh, an external investor coming to invest will want to invest in agriculture because that's where, um, you know, his, his highest return can be. And it's mm -hmm. up to um, the government to kind of like re to support these, you know, budding industries that are proven to have good impact on the country, like technology, mm -hmm. um, and sort of like start to nurture them. So the countries like in Ghana, for example, I'm very proud that, you know, our country is like taking steps towards that. So lots of the banks have been empowered by the government lots of, um, to, you know, have pitch competitions, have startup events to kind of like get this rolling and get this out off the ground. The government is putting in money, um, making funds available for young startups as well. So, that's excellent. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great news. And it's something that should ripple across the continent. And I think that with time, um, some of these markets will, will mature um, and you know, it will attract um, more investment. It will give, it will boost the confidence of local investors as well, and eventually will solve the problem. Um, one last thing that I'll add is that once for those startups that have you know are looking for investments or have got some investments, you have like a huge responsibility on the plate to make sure that you are not reducing the confidence of other investors in that sector. So mm. if you're starting up um, a startup, make sure that you have your books in mind, make sure you have your accounting in mind, make sure you have your projections right. Um, I spoke to, my, on my last trip to Ghana, I was having a conversation with um, a mutual friend who was looking to, a mutual friend of another friend who was looking to, um, looking for investments for his cinema tech business. Um, so I started to consult with him and he didn't have his, um, his projections, he didn't have his accounting for the past year or two years since he started the company. But he's had like uh, sales. He's had um, he's had some amount of like money poured into the company through either like um, revenue or through like you know personal investment. But there was nothing to show that you know this is a business that I could say okay, from last year to this year, you know, you started with this and you made that. I I, I don't have confidence. Mm. So it's not just about getting your product out there. There's a lot of like operations and and business development that has to be you know um, cared for once you have your startup going. Yeah. There's so much here. <laughs> There's so much. I mean, I think people also need to understand that it takes generations to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes a very long time. And there's so many, so many things that you need. Like you mentioned, the government has to set the policy. You need, you need finance. You need, you need markets. You need entrepreneurs need support. Like, I like you mentioned, so many of these entrepreneurs don't put their best foot foot forward. Yes, but also they need support. They need help. A lot of them just they're just they're just going as they go. <laughs> you know, like you, we've, we've spoken to, for example, Reginald, who was telling us about all these classes that he takes online. You know, he's on, he's taking all these MOOCs. He's taking this class. He's taking that class. A lot of these people are just struggling and learning themselves and teaching themselves because they don't have the proper, um, 
networks to go to to learn how to develop their business they don't know how to pitch they don't know how to do these things because that doesn't exist and then there's there's mm. the culture you know like we talked about it with was it with adeshina who was it you know nobody goes home and says i'm going to be an entrepreneur like who says that mm. you know what i mean <laughs> so there's like this whole culture there's support you know people need to be educated like it's one thing for everybody to be running around talking about startups but if half the population doesn't even know what a startup is <laughs> like what is the point there's just i think there's 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 a lot that's needed to build an ecosystem sometimes i feel like there's a lot of events but events aren't enough to push a, an ecosystem you know an event is just another event like a friend of mine in kenya always says you know it's like we just end up going to all these events but what comes out of these events you know so yeah that's true um what comes out of these events sometimes it's up to you as well yeah yeah um, for sure and i'm not disputing the fact that uh there is like the lack of education the lack of um support mm -hmm. but for example in in a ghanian market if if you give me a startup founder in accra who lives in accra for example mm -hmm. and he tells me that he has these problems i find it very hard to believe because I live miles away from um, Accra, but I'm well connected with the ecosystem and I know that the networks are there. Mm -hmm. I know that the opportunities are there. So definitely it's, it's, it's a more general problem, but yeah. then a big part of it also is the individual. And, and I just want to reiterate the fact that, you know, you always have to, you know, set up, running a setup is not easy. It was, no one said it's ever going to be easy. So you have to, you know, go through the motions and put in the work and make sure that you know you always have your best foot forward mm -hmm. um, if, if the resources are available look out for the resources if you don't find the resources create them yeah um, or like network at least find be in spaces that will you know allow you to um to, to find these resources if those don't exist create them maybe start one create one you know it's, it's extra work but it's something that goes into this collective effort that you know will boost or like will increase our potential when it comes to the entrepreneurship ecosystem. It's definitely not easy, um, but it's definitely sacrifices that we have to make to, to make it possible. And it is possible to create one um, because I'm, I'm doing a whole series on with my friends who are creating an, uh, an ecosystem in the Gambia and the Gambia is not, it's not a hot country. <laughs> like nobody says I'm going to go invest in the Gambia, but they're doing it, you know, and they're building it from the ground up just because people have decided we don't have this and we need to start it. So you're absolutely right. You have to be resourceful as well because it's not easy. But I want to switch the conversation a little bit because Heather, do you remember when we spoke to Tav and he told us he has like a spreadsheet with over, like, was it like hundreds of investors that he's spoken to? Do you remember that? Um, the hundreds of investors that he's spoken to in China. That was in uh, China, yeah. That was in China because he he was uh, he's an interesting case because he mm -hmm. uh, started his uh, entrepreneurial journey in, in Shenzhen and he was very plugged into the uh, Shenzhen startup ecosystem. But a lot of the investors that he spoke to like doesn't trust him as a foreigner to be able to tap into the Chinese market. So um, so he like he had to like struggle through uh, a lot of. Uh, like just going through all these meetings and uh, going like so close but every time because he's a foreigner like uh, people assume that he doesn't understand the market and they would choose a Chinese 
uh, startup over them or even steal mm -hmm. his idea. So I think those were kind of discouraging. But now he's back in, uh, he's back in Africa. He's in Kenya, and the Chinese investors there like uh, sees his experience in China as something that's very valuable. And now he's getting more like opportunities, uh, like ahead of like other Others. local investors. Yeah because he had the Chinese experience. And he speaks so, the language. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting point in that he, and that's why I brought it up, because he was here where he didn't have success, but he worked really, really hard, and he learned a lot, and now he's back on the continent, and it's the exact opposite. It's almost like being here is what has amplified his experience, and it's been like a catalyst for him. But even so, like even with speaking to him, he mentioned too that there are challenges even for local um, entrepreneurs on the ground. Like, you know, he, he's in a privileged position, but not everybody's going to be able to come to China or go to Bangalore or to Silicon Valley to get experience, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So cool. I, thought, I thought that was, that was, that was an interesting case. So what do you guys think about um or what do you think people like people like Tao, for example who've got who've got a lot of experience what what do you think people like both here or in other countries like Tao is just one example but let's say like Reginald is in Bangalore at the moment and there are quite a few guys who have gone and worked in in Bangalore and maybe they've worked in like startup very well established startup ecosystems around the world and they go back to their home countries what do you think they should be doing when they get back home yeah, I think that's like kind of Cyril's uh, specialty because mm -hmm. <laughs> you were so like passionate about engaging the African diasporas and um, yeah. especially the yeah Africans in tech in China. So like, what do you think their role could be or how, how you think you can support them? Right. Um, so so with, with ADIG, what, what we, we are trying to do is we, we realize the same uh, patterns were happening. Uh, first of all, from the students' perspective, I think that's one of the main entry points for Africans in China and in Asia in general is to come to study. Um, most of the time, there's a, a huge difference between um, what you're studying and what is going to be happening after you, gra you graduate. And it's even more amplified if you study in China and some Chinese universities. Um, the situation is not always um, the best. It might not always be the best decision that you, you might have made. Mm. Um, so you have lots of African students, Ghanaian students, like for one, um, that come to, to China to study and they sort of lose their way a little bit because of um, other pressures like um, to make money as a big one. So you have students coming in to teach and to, you know, trade a little bit to, you know, get some money to be able to survive. Um, so what, what we're trying to do with, with ADIG is to kind of give more than one way out to the African student that finds himself studying in, in, in China. Um, and this sort of kind of extends to um, other entrepreneurs and professionals in their early stages, if they also find themselves in China. Um, in terms of what we want to do is that we want to have this sort of, sort of uh, pipeline where students can get more, gain more technical experience, they can gain more education and and product development and management, um, things that are, are, are super important when it comes to running your own startup. Um, we give them these kind of um, experiences through workshops, through boot camps, 
um, and then for um, sort of people that are out of university that have ideas they want to execute, we will be able to provide them with uh, with the necessary um, contacts or or even finance where they can put their ideas into action um, and be able to execute them in the most efficient and um, um, in the most efficient way where they can scale up the easiest. It's what we kind of want to do, um, which is a little bit different from the situation of Tav or, or uh, not, not Tav, but with Reginald, who is like happens to be working somewhere. So in the case of Reginald, I'd say that um, you should just open your eyes to um, keep an open mind and, and sort of like be aware of the things that are working in whatever situation that you're in. That's kind of like, uh simple as it is like just keep an open an eye open for the opportunities that are around you mm. and um, always stay home like let your mind always be at home in, in um in the sense that even though i'm living in india right now i'm living in china right now i know that i um, i'm going back home i know that you know i'm gonna be home in the next two years and having this mindset kind of like keeps you aware and make sure that you know you're able to identify things that might work um, back home and if you have these two things in mind if you're lucky enough to have a business that's running in ghana or in, in nigeria whilst you're studying or whilst you're living in a different country you are able to apply certain things that you see in these areas and then test to see if it works or not so i'd say that for people that find themselves in these situations like like reginald um is that you know don't forget that you have something going on back home. You know, just keep it close to home. Um, for people in, in TAP situation, I know it's definitely hard to be in TAP situation. Yumi was in, my company Yumi was in TAP situation where um, you're in a China Chinese market. Um, yeah, other competitors, other players um, that are um, doing what you're doing and, and they're Chinese. So the population trusts them, investors trust them more consumers trust them more so how do you sort of like um come bring yourself out of that situation you know and for us what worked for us was our network our personal network and i think that's something that applies to most entrepreneurs and most startup founders is your first consumers are your personal network and once you can show that uh, the numbers are working and you you, you know you have the things that you're applying show results and then investors don't really have much of a choice but to agree with you um, but we are in a situation where it's quite easy for local consumers or lo local entrepreneurs to pick up an idea and just run with it, just like copy it shamelessly and make it theirs. Um, it's definitely like a tricky situation to be in. Um, I don't know. Um, it varies from, from industry to industry. But for example, in the e-commerce space, we were lucky enough to be able to identify a good product market fit. Um, where we knew the problem that we were trying to solve for our consumers and we made that like work for us. And that sort of like happens through experimenting and talking to more people about your idea and leaning in on your community or your network of not just Chinese um, consumers and, and investors, but also the foreign influences. Um, and you find that, you know, it might not be a Chinese person that invests in you, but it might be like a, a foreign investor because they, they are present in China. So. And the world is big, yeah? <laughs> the world is big, exactly. The world is big, perfectly said. Um, you might not get investment from a Chinese investor. It could be from, from a, a friend of a friend who happens to be an investor. 
Excellent. Noah, would you yeah, like to add to that? Uh, I don't think I have something to add on that. Uh, we can move on. Can move on. Okay. Yeah, I have something for Noah because, like earlier, we were speaking about the change of culture, and I know you also like you are uh, the president of Kenyan students in China and also running the student association in Kenya. Uh, so, and also like you were saying, like you were um, as the mentor, you wanted to provide tools to uh, or insights to support these students to go into workplace. Uh, so how do you see your role in terms of like encouraging uh, people like students to consider entrepreneurship or how do you think you can help break, break some of the barriers like is the traditional thinking is to like get a job uh, but like maybe through entrepreneurship there could be more opportunities because you can also potentially be creating jobs for, for young people um, yeah so yeah, just what do you think your role is and yeah, any ideas? I think um, there's a very big task for us to play in terms of mentors or coaches. Because I know it's, it is not easy, you know, for someone to just start one day their entrepreneurial journey and, and be successful, whether they are coming up with a uh, very simple app, mobile phone app, or maybe they're trying to solve a big e-commerce problem. Um, the most important thing is someone to get some good guidance because most of the pointers that we are having in terms of the challenges that people face, whether in the market or or in the you know in, in the in the growth chain, uh, it's mostly things that can be avoided. Or even in terms of how people get the the fundings and the investments, it's mostly in terms of how someone has been able to understand uh, the whole business per se, and that's where it comes. Uh, I think the role of us coming in as mentors or coaches to help these young entrepreneurs or these business people to build what I call or what, what I can refer to as social, a good social capital. Because mm. a social capital is quite uh, important. And I think for someone to be successful, mostly they're going to make good use of their social circles. And if they don't have a good understanding, if their social circles don't have a good understanding of what they want to do, then they might not be instrumental in, in helping them to, you know, to to scale up. So one of the things that we can do is, for example, we can form, uh, uh, say, uh, pilot groups in different regions, say in East Africa, in West Africa, Central Africa, South Africa, and North Africa. And then these pilot groups or these small channels, which I can, I can, I can also call chapters, can be used as uh, benchmarking platforms whereby we have voluntary mentors uh, or people who are already you know, successful in entrepreneurship and are willing to help these small startups to, to, to get on their feet and even say help some of them you know, by uh, investing in their projects or even acquiring <laughs> some of their projects because you know, some of the small startups are trying to solve some very small problems and most of those small problems probably can be acquired by these 
uh, big organizations. A good example in my country is Safaricom. So, so Safaricom is basically like um, a mobile, uh, mobile telecommunications company. And it started just as a regular telecommunications company. But today, it is not like the regular telecom telecoms, which is like uh, uh, bringing, uh, bringing back money to it. It's, it's not getting its profits more or less from telecommunications. It's getting its profits from money transfers because um, Safaricom was able to acquire um, the money transfer service, which uh, initially had been pitched to a company called Airtel. Airtel is quite famous in, in Africa, West Africa, I think South Africa also. But yeah. Airtel did not, did not see how, how, how money you know, money transfer could work at that time, back in 2006, late 2006, 2007. So Safaricom got uh, the idea and they were like, okay, cool, the, the, the proponent of the idea, like pitch, could they come up with something? They came up with a prototype and they saw like there was a huge possibility for it to work and, and it worked and Airtel lost a lot of money. Today, Safaricom is the biggest, it's the biggest company in Kenya, and it is um, actually the the largest money transfer service in Africa at the moment. You know, it's made from Africa, and it really understands the the African market. And maybe it's actually the only mobile transfer service uh, in, in the world that does not need internet. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you see it because it yeah. it solved a very basic problem yeah that people needed to uh simply move money money just has to move you know china 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 did it from a higher scale and uh did, did it like more or less the the chinese way you know using wechat and alipay and stuff and was able to embed it in social media and uh, though the thing that maybe safaricom has not decided to do is to maybe uh come up with our own uh, social media platform like the way China has WeChat and uh, Weibo and, ba and, and Baidu and stuff. So I think another thing that that could that could happen apart from say opening these small chapters in different parts of Africa, we could also try uh, as a region. I know this is one very difficult thing, and Charles could be my witness for us to do one thing as as Africa as a whole unit. Uh, given that, you know, we have all these, we have a myriad of cultures uh, from West Africa to, to to South Africa, North, East and West, and, and, and the central part of Africa with more than 2,000 languages, it sometimes becomes a bit difficult even for a product to penetrate into a market because the product is not in, it, it, it doesn't suit that culture, you know? For example, someone going to sell a certain type of, of um, of stilettos to Maasai in Kenya, they they don't do that. They don't wear stilettos. You know? They don't need them. <laughs> they don't. They don't need them. <laughs> you know, but you know, they'd be like, okay, this is what is in the market today. This is what could make you look fashionable. You know, but they they don't feel like it. it it's not within their cultural context. So yeah, uh, sometimes it's very difficult for some products to penetrate because of that lack of understanding of the business language or the business culture language or the cultural language. So what we could do is as Africa, 
as a unit, we could agree mostly on on some small issues, small and big issues uh, from the AU perspective, the African Union perspective, for instance, mm -hmm. even having a common continental language, which is one of the things that uh, the AU has been working on. Right now, you know, like there's a, the free continental trade area, which is mm -hmm. also making great progress, mm -hmm. tremendous progress. And I know that maybe soon we'll be having something that, uh, that could work, I think, you know, for Africa. So if we could have, for instance, a working language, let's say we pick tea in, in, uh, in Ghana, or maybe Swahili from Kenya, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> it could really help to make things easier for Africans, or even for us to uh, sell our products, you know, within, within the continent, because Africa is a very rich market. And, some of the products that we buy or we consume from either the West or from, from China are, are products we can make, although like uh, we can make actually better, better ones because we understand each other more. But what the Chinese do is they come into Africa, study us, study your market, understand our language, understand our products, understand what we need, understand what we love, and come up with something with a very a, a very pristine, clean prototype that's going to serve our interests, and, and and they know how to market it well, and they know how to play with our psychology right now. So, yep. what we, what we can do is we can try and make good use of say uh, brand brand ambassadors on every different region or or country, who could be quite instrumental in in defining these small products or even training uh, the young entrepreneurs on how to say break down the language when they are you know going to sell their products because i don't think it's possible to sell a product without really understanding the product itself you know and that's why uh, maybe some of the very excellent products end up dying you know, in a very short time. And I think there's another opportunity. There's, uh, there's a startup in my country uh, called Moringa School. Actually, uh, what it does is, is it, it does, yeah, it does more of that. It trains entrepreneurs. It, it, it does a lot of trainings in terms of making them understand, uh, you know, like the culture and the, the business uh, in itself and also to immerse them into the markets in terms of not just building products, but also uh, being, they have to learn how to be clients before they become entrepreneurs. So it's like they have to sell before they become the CEO because they will understand the needs. And just like we said from the beginning of the podcast is like you cannot sell if you do not really understand the need of the market. and Another very interesting thing also could be, uh, it, it's important for uh, the consumer to know how much worth their business is. Yeah, because it's sometimes difficult for some products to penetrate into the market or even to make some profits because we have a tendency of calling most of these products expensive. Yeah, we love cheap, cheap, cheap things. And that's what China did. So China came in 2009, 2010 and brought some and, and flocked our markets with Chinese phones. 
for, forget about the the top brands like uh, like Xiaomi and Techno. Before Techno came, there used to be some weird brands. You know, like Samsung could have an inverted A and it turns into a V. You call, yeah. you can't even read it. You know, yeah. so it becomes like S A. It becomes S V M S V. You can't read it. You can't. You know, Svon <laughs> Svon. I don't know how to read that name, but they sold them. You know, because they knew that these people basically need a gadget that is affordable, that is smart. You know, but after that, they realized like, no. Now Samsung is penetrating quite uh, strongly, and the quality of the phone is is good. Africans love a good camera; they love color and stuff. And that's when Techno was able to. Uh, t- Take take the market, and right now Xiaomi is 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 doing great things, you know. And maybe Chinese don't like. I realize a lot of Chinese have no idea about about techno because it's only for it's, Africans. It's not it's, sold in China. It's a it's strictly exactly. an African product. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, so but we've got Mara Mara in Rwanda, right? Is it called Mara the Mara X phone? Yeah, it's yeah. called Mara, Mara phone. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, yeah, Noah, exactly. what was the last thing that you were going to mention? No, it's okay. I was basically trying to reiterate what I had, uh, I think, mentioned earlier on uh, and try to link it with, with uh, Heather's question. We as mentors or coaches have to try and help these entrepreneurs to mostly understand the problem that they are looking for the problem in the market or the problem in the business and Mm. then try to help them to understand how they can get a market or a business in the problem they identified or the gap they're trying to to solve because if they cannot do that then that means it's going to be difficult for them to sell and i think the role of training or uh doing mentorship is really important in terms of making our uh, entrepreneurs successful in the long run. That's my take. And thank you for that, Noah. What do you guys think that what role does the diaspora have to play in all of this? Kenya has a massive diaspora abroad, so does Ghana. Yeah. Um, so I know that. Um, the diaspora in Europe and in Asia is very, in, in the Americas are relatively active. And um, when it comes to technology, it's still like a new space that the diaspora is reaching out into. Um, but I know that there are like initiatives that are, that are going on either through like mentorship or through investment um, or through training. Um, I know that that's something that is actively being worked upon. Um, mm-hmm. Coming, coming to Asia specifically, it's not the case. It's, it's pretty much non-existent um, in terms of um, actual tech and actual um, innovation. Uh, we sort of focus on slightly different things. And I think in, in the Asian market, it's, it's dominated by trade uh, when it comes to the African diaspora. Yeah, well, I should have been clear. I'm sorry. I mean the diaspora in the United States, the UK, Australia, maybe maybe uae i mean traditional diasporas where you have highly educated well-heeled people oh yeah we we have we definitely have like a huge role i'll even add asia in that in that mix actually okay Um, 
um, we we all have a huge role to play. Like um, Noah said, we, and Canada. Um, yeah, um, like Noah said, um, mentorship is is a very important part to play. Uh, we are privileged, like you said, to have been through different opportunities and have been through different experiences that even though they may or may not have succeeded, can still play a valuable life lesson to a lot of these young entrepreneurs. So the minimum that we can do is, um, as an individual in the diaspora, just pick someone and mentor them. Um, join a network on WhatsApp and just chat with people and share your experiences. That's mm -hmm. the, the least that you can do. On a more collective aspect of it, um, we know what the problems are in our various countries um, from a, a first-hand perspective. So we could definitely um, contribute either monetarily or through investments, um, or even, who knows, create a fund available to uh, the particular sector in, in a country and work towards that. And one of the things that ADIG wants to do is to you know, strengthen the, the African diaspora in Asia um, to better empower African countries and, and African young Af African entrepreneurs. So we, we definitely have a huge role to play in all of this. Awesome. What about you, Noah? What do you think about the diaspora? What role do they have to play in building entrepreneurial ecosystems in specifically on the African continent? I can say uh, they have a role to play and some of them have actually started doing mm -hmm. uh, different projects. I have seen uh, the diaspora group in US. Uh, actually, it's like women, Kenyan women in the United States mm. have uh, come up with a foundation and they actually do some of this uh, like funding funding um, projects. And they also, they, they also try to lobby the government, you know, into say securing some funds for young people to uh, mostly go to study and maybe hone their entrepreneurial skills say in the US and it has really helped I think by having some of these uh, I think opportunities it empowers or it gives these entrepreneurs a different perspective because sometimes even by simply being in <laughs> in your own country you never learn or you never see you never see it in a different way. You never, you never see it differently. You always think your product is, is the best until you go to, or you come to China and realize, oh, so you don't have to enter any number to, 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 to pay someone. You know, you just scan a QR code and, and, and you're done and business is done. You just yeah, like um, select someone's contact and, and you can wire them some money directly without uh, going through pains and all that. So by also getting these different exposures, it, it helps them to, uh, to say, be more innovative, either by coming up with more radical products or they do some, what I can call incremental innovation on their mm -hmm. products. And also, <clears throat> uh, it could also give them some, some understanding of the global market because some of the products are not just made for the like uh, the local community. For example, we have seen from the previous um, the previous interviewees, some of them have products that are actually targeted to the whole continent. 
and some are only focusing on 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 a small niche so i think it's it's good if someone gets a perspective from from outside and then even builds a product from inside because at least they have they understand what is really happening from the inside and i think one other thing that also has to be done is uh, there has to be some sort of enlightenment because some diaspora disconnected you you see for example in china we have close to 5000 kenyans and we cannot more or less uh you know meet on one group we mm. cannot even form like one a solid group for us to discuss on these things so what we do is you know we 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 have this small chapters for example in shanghai in beijing in tianjin guangzhou or suzhou and uh and say chengdu sichuan province and then like we try to uh share similar projects and and then we handle them from 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 this from different corners but i think if we called uh as africans come up with uh even an african an african if not say focused on a specific country if we can have an african funding or an african foundation which is even led by one of our top uh entrepreneurs you can even have someone like mo farah or you can have dangote and and stuff instead of say having you know champions from the east you know leading you know because right now jack mai is i think more uh uh welcome in, in almost any african country than dangote you know because i know that's such a mm, yeah interesting yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you can imagine so yeah. i think it's it's because he he has tried to understand he's visible i think he's much more visible because dangote does a lot too but i maybe dangote is just not as visible as jackma do you think yeah that is also that there that, that is also a perspective to to say yes to <laughs> yeah so maybe the last thing i can say is we can we can even develop some i think some simple platform uh where we could uh even create a database for example mm-hmm. which uh i think can source for information or uh even needs from the diaspora or the the diaspora market and then try to match it with uh the needs in uh in uh, or say the demand in in africa and on then the ground, maybe yeah. it yeah on the ground and i think that could be an easier way to uh to try and solve problems because it might be easier for diaspora to some extent to raise uh such an amount of money compared to local investors yeah it it can be easier for for the diaspora community to raise and they have their own money dollars yeah exactly to me a million dollars is 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 nothing from the, for the diaspora community but if you talk about a million dollars for uh local investors you leave them scratching their heads Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Heather? Um I I don't have anything else. Okay. Well, guys, I think we're done. <laughs>
Okay, nice. thank you so much for your time. This was <laughs> I have um, to go back and re-listen to it. This was a really interesting conversation, and we'd both like to thank you for for coming on and for giving us some of your time. It was it was really enlightening. It was valuable. It was great to hear your perspectives. Thank you, Cyril and Noah. And before we leave, do you have any parting words that you would like to share with our four interviewees that we interviewed or others in their position? Um, yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. It's been definitely an interesting conversation. Um, it's, been, it's been definitely fun. Um, for our four, the other four um, interviewers that you had and any other entrepreneur, both early stage and, um, you know, more mature in, in, in the business, I'd say try to focus a lot on the little things um, and, and try to put funnels and, and pipelines in place for you to realize what things mean the most for your business at a given time and put your energy there. Mm. Um, it may be very easy to to let your ambitions run loose and even though they are important it's more important for you to have um, growth so it, it might be more profitable for you to tackle a smaller problem today uh, to in order to give you the the momentum to tackle huge problems tomorrow um, i think that's that's uh, what i can leave with with, with the audience thank you so much cyril Noah? Yeah, thank you so much, Joanne and, and Heather, for this opportunity. Uh, I believe we've, we've all learned a lot from the insights and, and from the questions as well uh, through new frontiers of African tech. And uh, I'd maybe say for the four previous interviewees, one of the critical things that I noticed is um, they are focusing on Africa. So that means they must have a good understanding of the continent, the people, and the business culture. And maybe to put it so straight, I will go with uh, one of the most promising uh, rules of success. That is sell one product. Don't try to sell too many products, especially if you're using tech and you're selling too many products. It, it, it becomes difficult for the clients to to uh, to adapt to it or even to uh, to to feel affiliated to it yeah so I'll just go in maybe it will be greater to just sell one product yeah I think I can I can add something to what Noah said about um, like focusing on one product um, based on the examples that we have here in China like the our incredible apps like WeChat and Alipay and Meituan, which now today seem like um, they do everything. You have to remember that when they started, they had one single focus. They, they, they solved one problem. WeChat solved the communication problem, the social network problem. Alipay solved a monetary problem. So um, like I said, your ambitions are free to run as wild as you can imagine but make sure that you are well positioned uh, to have meaningful incremental growth. That is what is important for investors. That is what is important for your business as well. Marvelous. Thank you so much, guys. Really thankful for your time. And I hope all of our listeners have been 
encouraged and motivated and inspired and everything else. And that's it, folks. So bye for now. Bye. 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 <laughs>